Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Christian Church. I'm very glad you're with us here today, here in the West Auditorium, to all of you who are in the East Auditorium and those who are participating and worshiping with us online and remotely. I'm very glad you're here. Particularly if you're a guest, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and uh, welcome. And as has already been mentioned, if you'd like to kind of connect with us in a way that says, hey, this is who I am, and I'd like to know a little bit about about who you are and what's going on, you can simply text your name or text the, text the word hello, whatever, the, whatever you'd like to, to the church's phone number, 217-875-3350, and we will be in touch with you in the days ahead. So it's at your invitation, if we, at our invitation to you, if you will, to get engaged together. So I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew is in the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament. It's about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, and we'll be looking at that beginning in verse 35 in just a few moments from now. But I want to start our time together with a scene uh, that I'm inviting you to imagine in your head today, namely um, an awkward moment that could come your way. Maybe it's come your way in the past. You go out for dinner with a friend, perhaps at your spouse. And um, it's, it's, it's a little bit out of town. It's to a place you've not been before. And uh, you're unfamiliar with the setting and how it all goes. And you're, you're kind of looking through the, uh, over the restaurant and then the menu and everything. And while you're there, you see something that's sort of stunning and a little bit alarming. You see the spouse of a friend um, sitting with someone who is very, very attractive And from the way they are behaving, it's obvious that they are more than just friends. Something seems awry. The couple complete their meal and walk out the door. They don't notice you. They behave with great affection as they leave, and you are left with a dilemma. What will you do? Will you tell your friend, knowing that it's going to end badly, no matter what the response is, Will your story be considered unbelievable? No way, and thus it might ruin your friendship. Or will it actually be believed and would introduce struggle into someone else's marriage? Or perhaps do you simply say nothing, saying, well, it's really none of my business, and carry on? How would you decide what to do? Who would you talk to to get some advice? What would be your guide? dilemma, right? Well, here's a dilemma maybe a congregation might face. Perhaps an older fellow starts attending the church, and uh, after he's been there for a while, it's plain that the man has significant funds because of the way in which he is very generous with a lot of things, and um, along the way, it also becomes apparent he has a great ability to teach children. He has a real affinity for 11-year-olds. And the congregation is glad to see the impact of his generosity and his teaching abilities, and all seems well until, I don't know, nine nine to 15 months in, an ex-wife shows up, and she has tales of violence and physical abuse. And you begin to wonder, should this man continue teaching? Should the church continue to accept his gifts? How how would you decide? Who could help us form a decision in that sort of matter if that was this church? What's our guide? These sorts of questions are not just random thoughts. 
They are places of real life and real settings. And today I'd like to explore with you how to make decisions in all sorts of perplexing situations. How, where, where do we get help? Where, where do we go? We're starting a new four-week sermon series this, this weekend called Foundations. And I'm going to be bringing all four of these messages to you as the lead pastor of the church because we want to explore the core values of our congregation. These are matters and areas of our church life together that form how we work together. The core values that we have set up the parameters of our mission, and they've done so for many years ago. Back in the early 2000s, I remember um, back in the area where the cafe is now, we had a fellowship hall, and the leaders of our congregation gathered with actually Billy Graham's grandson, who helped us form our core values. He came and he spent a Friday night, a Saturday, all day Saturday to Saturday evening. It was back in those days before we had Saturday worship, and then Sunday afternoon. And we examined... um, Who are we as a congregation? What is it we want to do? And particularly, what are the core values of our congregation as we um, looked at the track record of where we'd been, our future plans, our future hopes and understandings? We identified four ways that we do church life, four ways that we do church business, if if you will, together. How do we think? How do we act? How do we plan? How do we pray? We set aside four core values which are very much still in play in the life of our church today. Namely, first of all, we respond to God's Word. We expect the Bible to be our primary guide. Secondly, we encounter the Holy Spirit. We want the Holy Spirit to be engaged in our decisions. We build community both within the congregation and outside the congregation. How are we building the community while we build community in here? And then fourthly, we have this saying, and you've seen this before, We are a congregation that embraces change. We're going to take a week, uh, a weekend now, uh, for each four of those, starting today, with today's discussion being, how do we we make decisions around here? Well, our primary focus, our primary source guide is the Bible. We respond to God's Word. And to help you understand that today, I want to start with a story from Jesus' life, one that Pastor B.J. Um, mentioned and referenced last week as he so clearly brought us to an understanding of Leviticus chapter 19. B.J. got us off to a great start with this story, and I mentioned it to him this week. I said, so, B.J., I just want you to know I'm going to come in and clean up around the edges. He looked at me, what do you mean? I said, I'm just joking. And he said, like, like clean up in aisle Matthew 22? Yeah. <laughs> Not exactly. He did a great job, and frankly, he got us off to a great... He was unaware that I was going to be looking at Matthew 22 today, and he got us off to a great start with that. So if you weren't with us last week, may I remind you just a little bit of the story, that Jesus was from the northern area, the area called Galilee in in the land of Israel. It's in the northern part of the nation, and Jerusalem, Israel's capital, was in the south, and we see throughout the Gospels, throughout the stories of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the biographies of Jesus, if you will, we have these, these stories of Jesus traveling back and forth from the north to the south and then back and forth a number of times. And late in his ministry, Jesus traveled one last time from Galilee down to the Judean area, down to Jerusalem. And it was there that he was betrayed and very quickly executed. And in the final days of his life, Jesus was down the south there in Jerusalem, and the religious leaders are in Jerusalem, the capital city. 
They were on the attack. They didn't like this guy, this northerner. I mean, there was some disparity and some disagreement between the north and the south anyway. Sound familiar? And, um, and, 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 and the southerners were ruling the day in, in Israel. And so they didn't really like this northerner coming down and telling them how to do religion. And so they were on the, the attack. They were looking for loopholes in his ministry, something that he might say in his statements, re- religious-like, that were... Um, improper or maybe even heretical because in those days if you said something that was heresy that would contradicted the scriptures if it, it was a capital offense and so they were looking for some way in which they could say Jesus is saying something that is not in line with our scriptures and thus we could call him guilty of heresy and we could kill him and they asked him a, var- a variety of questions in a variety of settings beginning um, really on what we would say Sunday Monday through to about Thursday of one week and and each question became increasingly um, difficult successively more complicated and intricate and the struggle the nuances became more more complicated and he had these verbal doing and some sparring debates that were well, more, each more nuanced with each topic, if you will. And they, were just, they started out with, well, who should you pay taxes to? And then, then after he answered that, another question came up. Uh, talk to us about marriage in heaven and who, uh, what's going to happen in heaven. And they set up a scene for him. They, they said, so the, this couple get married, a man and a woman get married, and we don't know a lot about the woman, but we do know that the man was one of seven brothers. They get married, and somewhere along the line in this uh, scenario they set up, the fella dies, the husband dies, and the woman, the widow, marries sibling, brother number two, who promptly dies. She marries number three, who promptly dies, and eventually she makes her way through all seven brothers. Remember that show, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? This is one bride for seven brothers, but there you go. So she knows how to kill them off pretty quickly, it would appear. Well, the scriptures didn't really say that, but I'm just, I'm just interpreting it that way. Okay. So, anyways, they said they, this is a, this is a test for Jesus, and they go, "Who's she going to be married to in heaven?" Now, I don't know how I would answer that question, but I do know this: there is no way in God's green earth that I'd be husband number eight. Not without a special test for poison in every dish she serves at dinner. So it, it, it just goes on and on, and it finally comes down to a very specific question where they're, they're bringing a lawyer in front of him now, beginning in Matthew chapter 22, verse 35, if you'll read with me. An expert in the law, a lawyer shows up and tests him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, he's specifically referring to the book of Leviticus that we've spent the last five weekends studying, okay? So what's the most important thing in the law? And they're looking again for ways that Jesus might contradict the Scriptures because they can kill him if he messes up. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, everything that's been written that we call Judaism today, it hangs on those two commandments, he says. And so a reminder that Jesus' life story and his timeline 
as we look in the rearview mirror, is set 2,000 years ago. But as he is talking and as he's referring to the law and the prophets, he's looking in his rearview mirror going back at least 1,000 years. So from our perspective, he's speaking about things that were written some 3,000 years ago. And what he's doing is he's validating the words that were written 3,000 years ago from our vantage point. And he's indicating that if you want to know how to live, if you want to know how to figure out the first and second and most important things and going on from there, start with the Scriptures. And the Scriptures he recognized, of course, were the words that we find in what is known as the Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament. He actually quoted Leviticus 19, which is what Pastor B.J. was working with last weekend. That passage of Scripture that he's referring to, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, was written more than a thousand years before Jesus was alive. Now, years later, after Jesus' earthly ministry, the early Christians um, were charged with a new responsibility beyond the Old Testament, beyond the Hebrew Bible. They're, they were looking around at all the writings that were taking, had been put in, on paper in the days that, talking about Jesus' ministry in the early church, and they, they wanted to say, okay, so we have the Old Testament, we have the scriptures that go back anywhere from at that point 500 to 1,500 years earlier and so forth. We could talk, that's a whole other debate and question, but nonetheless, old, we have the old writings, but here we are in the days of just following Jesus Christ. Is there anything that's being written right now that's important for us? And so with that, they put together, under the Holy Spirit's direction, these things have been written, and we are seeing these now as the New Testament. So the series of writings that we have that we call the Bible are actually gathered from many sources. You've got the Old Testament, which predate Jesus, and the New Testament, which are talking about Jesus' life and the stories after that. And they come from a you know, variety, all the 66 books come from a variety of differing authors with differing life stories and different life perspectives, written over a period of well over a thousand years. And this might surprise you. When you look in the table of contents in your Bible, look there right now if you've got your Bible in front of you. Did you know that everything in, in that table of contents, that is not in chronological order? Oh, light bulb. I'm sure for some people you go, wait, you mean if I start at Genesis and work through Revelation, I'm going to read one story? Nah, well, it's one story, but it's kind of out of order. There is, by the way, something called the chronological Bible, which is what I use it for my daily devotions, that just puts everything in order. And I find that very, very helpful. And so, basically, what I want you to understand is, from the perspective of this congregation and from the leadership teams of this church, of which I'm a part, this book that Jesus referenced, we said, if you want to live life, do, do what Leviticus says and, and follow the law and all the prophets, everything in the Old Testament. This book is the full word of God, able to guide our lives. It's fully created by God as the Holy Spirit inspired dozens of writers. This book called the Bible shows God's plan for humanity and the cosmos. This book shows the plan for our church. And this book shows the plan for you and for me. Why would I say that? Well, let's go back to Jesus again. See, there were some in Jesus' day who were wondering if he was going to abolish the truth that they were, or the rules that they had. I mean, was Jesus going to, did Jesus come along and was he going to say, well, yeah, that was old school, now here's new school and we're not going to worry about old school? Well, may I remind you, 
Our culture is very concerned with truth. What's truth? And, 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 but in the ancient world, there wasn't so much concern about truth as we have it. They didn't have science like we have. They didn't have empirical evidence. They didn't have history like we have it. And, they, and so it, they, they didn't really respond to truth like we do in our culture. They were from the East. It's an Eastern culture. And in the Eastern culture, particularly in the Eastern world, and even so still some today, what really speaks to people's lives is not truth so much as power. And if you think about it, Jesus, his stories and the narratives of his life are not when he's often, he's, I mean, he's not really addressing truth a whole lot. Instead, you have these narratives of great power. Demons are corralled and thrown into hell. Storms are obliterated. Diseases are healed. The dead are resurrected. And having said all that, with, even though I said, hey, the focus is on power, when it still came down to basics, Jesus said this about truth. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, namely the ancient Hebrew scriptures, but instead I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, very clearly Jesus validated scripture as the divine source of guidance and teaching and power. He often quoted scripture. And he certainly allowed the ancient writers to lead and to guide him and to shape his life and ministry. And those writings that he was referring to were the final authority in how he chose to live. They were, in fact, his truth. So given all of this, I would suspect you're probably saying, okay, I understand that Jesus looked to the ancient writers. He looked to the Hebrew Bible. He looked to what? Christians call the Old Testament, as a way in which to guide his life. But, you know, things have moved on in the 2,000 years since then. Things have moved on since when all that stuff was written both 2,000 and 3,000 years ago. There's, we have better science. We have better methodologies of doing life. And we have better guides. And shouldn't we just kind of look at Scripture and go, well, that's nice? Well, my response is this. If Christians truly do follow Jesus Christ, then we should do what Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? He validated the past writings. He validated the Bible. We should do the same. See, I have to acknowledge there are congregations and even whole denominations that would list the Bible, and they do it in full honesty. They list the Bible as a source of guidance. But they would not affirm that it is the final authority on all matters related to life and faith. And I kind of get it, on the one hand, why they would choose that. Because our culture doesn't like to have the Bible always as their authority, does it? I mean, for example, what happens when popular culture would push for universalism? Universalism meaning that there are many gods and many ways to righteous spirituality. I mean, that's a popular thought. Well, this truth and this religion is for you, and this religion over here is for you, and this is my religion here, and they all have equal truth. That's diversity. It's pluralism, common and lovely words in our culture. But the Bible states otherwise. Jesus himself said there's only one way to the Father. He says, no one comes to God but through me. And there are lovely, lots of lovely people, fine, upstanding citizens of our nation and other nations who follow their faiths with great, great tenacity. But I'd have to say, the Bible doesn't acknowledge that as truth. Or, well, that's one case of where the Bible speaks to a matter that may be not popular. 
There are other areas where the Bible has some very clear understandings that are difficult in our day and time. One of the most difficult questions in contemporary society is this. What's the best definition of gender? And the questions that follow regarding marriage and interpersonal relationships. Where's our guide? Who wins the debate about gender fluidity and the makeup of marriage? Wow. Wayne, you're getting a little bit tender here. You're getting a little bit close to home. Well, here at First Christian Church, on these matters and others, I have to say that this congregation, we do all that we can to follow Scripture's viewpoint. From an orthodox point of view, when I say orthodox point of view, I'm talking about we look at the history of the church and the history of the people of Israel. And where did they land on matters like this? So we're going to follow their orthodox approach. But having said that, we will still act with great compassion and care for those and speak to those who may not track or accept all the Bible's guidelines or authority. I get it that we live in a pluralistic world. And it brings great struggle to us. There are some wonderful things that come with pluralism. But when it comes down to followers of Jesus Christ, I have to say we have to start and end with Scripture. Now, our congregation worked through all these sorts of issues and questions many years ago, back in the 1980s, in fact, starting in the early 80s, before I was the pastor. And this congregation, I say we, me looking back and saying, those people back there who I take on their mantle, we decided the Bible was our inspired God, God, guide, pardon me, even when others might choose to disagree. And I have to acknowledge, it's their prerogative to disagree, fair enough. But we would say, well, well can I give you some fancy theological language that may, I'll have to say, you may not fully understand everything we're about to say, but for the record, for the record, from a theological point of view, let me make this statement so you hear exactly where this congregation stands on these matters. That First Christian Church does not accept historical biblical criticism. And that's a whole, that's, I just said a whole bunch right there. Basically, the viewpoint stating that the Bible is a historical book with some spiritual overtones or ideas. And it's very, that, that thinking is very popular in some Christian circles. Instead, we believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God, fully able and reliable to direct life now and eternally. I'm aware there are people within the Christian faith who may not agree with us on this matter. But when it comes to the Bible, this congregation intentionally stated that the Scripture is God's final authoritative Word many, many years ago. Long story short, we left our former denomination. We left some mighty fine folk. We said, you know, the, we, it was the Christian church, disciples of Christ. And we, we'd been in that denomination for generations, and yet we had to come to a place um, starting in the early 80s all the way through to 2002 when we finally said, um, we can't carry on. Uh, and we, 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 we tried to leave with grace and tenderness and care, but we had to say, this is where we land. You're not there. This is where we are. It's, our, it's a belief that we continue to hold. Now, I have knowledge. I, I must acknowledge it's a faith position. And because there's sometimes you go, you really believe everything in the Bible? But I'd have to say, well, yeah, in faith I do. Because if the Bible is not reliable in some aspect, if it's simply in some aspect human writings, then I need to ask you what parts are not reliable? 
I mean, which ones are you saying are unreliable? I mean, is the virgin birth reliable, or is it a metaphorical tale? I mean, a sinless Jesus Christ is required in order for, for his life to save us, and you can't have a sinless life unless there's a virgin birth. Is the resurrection that the disciples wrote about in the Gospels, or Paul wrote about, is it some absurd story they made up um, to, if you will, to cover up Jesus' death, and they were trying to figure out what to do with the demise of this dream they had that the kingdom of God really was advancing. Or, most importantly, perhaps, is the atoning power of Jesus Christ's cross invalid? Is that the part that's unreliable? If it's not fully inspired, then what parts are inaccurate and thus what parts of our salvation are lost, are non-existence? Are you and I still dead in our sins and not alive in Christ after all? Here's what we believe. We believe the history of the Bible tells stories, and these things happened as examples. This is what the Bible says about itself. These things happened as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. That's a long treatise that I've just presented to you today. And in the middle of it, I think I need to ask you this question. What should you do with this information? What should I do with this information so far today? Well, I'd say in faith, you could start this way. You could choose to accept the Bible as God's truthful word to humanity to our church and to you personally. Now, if you can't get there, fair enough. There are many people who can't get there. I understand that. But for me, in faith, the Bible is God's truthful word for humanity, for this church, and for you and me. And after you make that choice, then choose who you will serve. As displayed in Scripture, the Bible proclaims that Jesus is the full embodiment of God in the flesh, the Savior of humanity's woes, humanity's struggles, humanity's sins, all the evil deeds of humanity throughout history. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all of that. And a Christian is someone who places his or her eternal destiny in the saving power of Jesus Christ as portrayed in the Bible. And if the Bible is not reliable in this matter, then as Christians, we'd all have to say, our faith is inaccurate and deplorably untrue. And I'm telling you, friends, if it's untrue, then I'm throwing in the towel today. I know I'm supposed to retire next June, but I'm calling it a day today. I'm not going to wait another year. If it's untrue, I'm done. And 40 years of ministry is null and void. No. If, if it's untrue, then Scripture states that we are the most miserable of all people because we've been duped. However, if the Bible is true, then follow what the Bible says to do. Place your eternal destiny at the foot of the cross while walking the path of life as described in the Bible. Is it easy? I'm not suggesting it's easy. I'm not suggesting it's popular. But I'm suggesting and telling you that's what the Scriptures say. So how can I make this a little more personal and real for you today? I want you to take a look at this painting that's going to appear. The artist is a woman by the name of Michael Ruth Penwell. And I'm asking you, what do you see in this painting? 
I'll give you some things to note because I know some of us, myself included at times, we look at paintings and go, well, that's nice. What's it mean? Well, let's take a look at this painting and see what we can learn together. Notice the, uh, the lady. You see the lady in yellow? What's behind her? The cross and an empty tomb. She's walking away from the cross of Christ. And in doing so, she has no eyes. Her ears have disappeared. There's a path, but she's not on it. She's going her own way. And apparently it's difficult because you can see her clenched fists. She's making her own way, but it's very hard. She's chosen the hard, rocky way instead of the smooth, prepared way. Is it you? Is that a depiction of you? As I stated many years ago, our congregation chose to see the Bible as the final authority in our program life, our decisions, and in our mission. And the Bible is the basis of all our congregational life. It's what our family has chosen to follow. I would say this, that the Bible has pointed this church and our family, the Kents, has pointed us first and foremost to Jesus Christ. He is the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our lives. And that thought and understanding of how we manage our family is echoed by hundreds upon hundreds of people in the life of this church. And I would invite you to choose to do the same. Accept a path that is not going your own way, but instead in the way of the Jesus Christ of Scripture. Let's pray together. Father, um, I thank you for the coming of Jesus Christ. and That's powerful and important and effective. And God, I also thank you for the gift of Scripture. Because without the Scriptures, we wouldn't know about the coming of Jesus Christ. We wouldn't have the ability to reflect and to think and to hear the work of your Spirit within us. I pray, Lord, that um, each person here today, in either auditorium, person at home, maybe watching this in their office later on or months from now, catching it online, I pray, God, that your Spirit would convince us of the truth of Scripture. And then, Lord, based on that, may we be people, Lord, who... Um, simply choose to follow you through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Friend, I would say this. If you today, something within you just went, mm, I got to figure this out. I want to know what it means to walk with Jesus Christ. We'd love to hear from you this week. All you got to do is text your name and, or text, hey, I, I want to know more about Jesus to the church's phone number or call the church. Send us an email. We'd be glad to get engaged in the conversation with you. God bless you today.